Welcome to It Just Makes Sense. A podcast by two easily distracted, higher educated former lovers. That explores all the unpopular opinions, conspiracy theories, and cult leaders that make you want to scream, It It Just just Makes Sense. sense. I'm Sam Smith. And I'm Jeff Seifert. And on this episode, we're covering the death of Eugene Franklin Malov. Eugene. Ever heard of him? (laughs) No. That's what I was waiting for you to say so then I could follow my script that says, wow, I can't believe you've never heard of him, Jeffrey. Oh, because normally I go, who? I know. So I was like. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I fucked that up. (laughs) Well, Eugene is an American scientist, science writer, editor, and publisher of Infinite Energy magazine. He was a proponent of cold fusion and a supporter of its research and related exploratory alternative energy topics. Why would I have heard of him? I don't know. He seems pretty famous. Have you heard of him before this? Yeah. You lie. <laughs> I didn't even know you. what cold fusion was. I had to Google it. <laughs> this involves... Fusion is smashing two atoms together. This involves a conspiracy theory. Love it. I didn't even know what I started watching dun, at. Dun, dun. Oh, my God. So the story begins with Eugene Malov and his wife heading to his childhood home about two hours away. And they were in Connecticut. Ever since his parents moved out in 2002... Eugene had been running the house out for them. The house was currently in between tenants, and Eugene was there to clean it out, move some things that had been left there out of it, get it ready to rent again, etc., etc., etc. For a big time scientist. I mean, I don't think he was like a big time scientist. Oh, you made it seem like he was like Einstein <laughs> or something, and I should have known who he was. I feel like he was similar to like. One of the guys from Big Bang Theory. Like, you know what I mean? Like, doing research and publishing it, but not, like, Einstein over here. A TV character? Oh, my God. Uh, I'm literally never going to record with you again. (laughs) Now, eventually a woman drives by the house later that night and sees a for rent sign on the lawn and pulls over to see the house. The lights are on, but when she knocks, there's no answer at the door. Now, here's my thing. What? If you see a for rent sign on someone's lawn with a phone number, I would never go up to the door. I would assume that there's renters in there and to call the number because it's a landlord. Like, you know what I mean? I'm not sure that I would naturally assume that there were renters in there, but I would assume. I feel like I would. I would call the number. That's how I got my apartment. Well, we got our apartment on Commonwealth. Like, we. They had a four rent sign. We yeah, called the phone. Right. We set up a time to And go then there. when no one answers the door, she walks around the house to the back of it. Why? To be like, anybody home? Like, I feel like that's a little nosy ass intruder. When? What year was this? I don't remember. I'll mention it eventually. But anyways, huh. when this woman walks around the side of the house, she's in for a big surprise. Blood. Guts. She runs into a little moving trailer with items in the process of being placed on it. And amongst that, Eugene's dead body. <gasps> what? He had been brutally beaten and left for dead. The police believe it was a random robbery gone wrong. He had, but he had about 35 to 40 lacerations all over his body. He had blunt force trauma to his head. But what caused his death? His one his windpipe had been crushed and it caused him to suffocate to death. Seems awfully heinous to be just a random act of violence, if you ask me. There was blood stains all over the driveway indicating that he had put up a pretty big fight and it was a prolonged attack. 
His wedding ring was missing. He had a tan line where it should have been. And after checking his pockets, his wallet was also missing. His time of death was around 7 to 8 p.m. It seemed like a petty robbery, but the overall brutality, like you said, is indicating motive. Someone who specifically wanted him dead. His wife and two children were in shock. So there was a dumpster on the property, and as he was cleaning out the house, or that he had on there to clean out the house, so they started investigating, looking within the dumpster, but there was nothing there. The house itself was mostly empty inside, but a neighbor from across the street comes over to try to help. He told police he had seen Eugene the night before getting rid of stuff in the dumpster around like 6.30 p.m. So he would have seen him literally right before he got attacked. Now, I don't know why, but it's really kind of bugging me that you keep saying Eugene. Why? I don't, I don't, I don't think there's too many people that probably go by their full name if their name is Eugene. How do you know? I would say that they would probably just go by Gene. I don't think so. Or Huge. No. <laughs> I, my dad has a cousin Eugene who goes by Gino. See? You want nah. me to call this guy Gino? No, it's fine. You can keep going by Eugene. It just At some like- point, I changed it to his last name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I like the name Eugene. That's fine. And you call him Gene. My dad's friend has a dog named Eugene, and I think that's why I keep, like, I'm struggling with it here. That's okay. I can't. However, so the neighbor also told the police that Eugene's green minivan was missing. There was a sticker on the back window of his comp- first company, www.infinityenergy.com. And it wasn't just like a little sticker. It like covered the whole back window. You know how people have like those things for their companies if they're like in an MLM or whatever, they'll like post like <laughs> oils by Maureen and like a huge thing. This is infinityenergy.com. Big. <laughs> Bold. <laughs> like an MLM, like say they're Color Street Nails, big sticker. Lulu leggings. Lulu leggings. So that's like what it was, a ginormous sticker on his car. So that should make this car easy to find or memorable if right. people were to see it, right? Right, right, right. So they put out like an all points to police to look for this green minivan. And almost right away they get a hit. There's someone reporting seeing this minivan the night of the murder. This guy's name is Oscar Jandry, and he worked for a local hotel and drove the shuttle van. He said that he normally didn't notice those things, but when he saw the huge website, it caught his attention. This is around like 8.30 at night, and he knows the exact time because he had just dropped off some hotel guests at the local casino. He drove up next to the van eventually on the road, and when he looked over, he said he saw just one guy, a white man with a baseball cap on, but he said he noticed something a little strange, that the driver had socks on his hands. That is weird. Right. And so they, the police started looking for the van in areas around the casino, and they find it. What? And the very back lot of the casino parked in between, like, this full parking lot. Oh, okay. Like, if you think about it, it's kind of like a pretty good nondescript place to, like, leave a car. Leave a car. You know? Yeah. And people stay so long at casinos, you wouldn't really notice if it was there for a while. Yeah. Oh, airport. There was no security cameras in the parking lot, which, like, I find a little wild to not have security cameras in the parking lot of a casino. Agreed. You know what I mean? What if someone wins a big jackpot? 
gets mugged in the yard. Have you ever won so much that you had to be escorted out by security? Yeah, one time. Get out. Yeah, you know this. I don't know this. I won just short of $18,000 the one night at the casino. I would have passed out. You didn't know that? No. Oh, yeah. I got rip-roaring wasted. And then I went to the casino after the bar, and I don't even know why they let me in. (laughs) Because I I shouldn't have been even let in the place. And I don't know. At one point, I, like came to and I had thousands and thousands like I started to like sober up yeah and realize what was going on and I had like 10 grand in front of me were you playing blackjack yep and mm-hmm. you just kept playing yep and then they came over and they maybe not 10 quite 10 grand yeah. at that point but then they came over and they asked me if they if I wanted to move to a table in the high limit room and I was like sure I'd love to and I remember I played for like 16 hours and at one point I wanted another drink and they stopped serving alcohol so I gave the girl a $500 chip I'm like go find me some vodka sweetie stop (laughs) yeah great times (laughs) it was fun everyone loved me I was just handing out cash when I'm a winner everybody's a winner I just remember one time my dad won like a not that much but a jackpot on the slot machines and they escorted him out Mm -hmm. and I was like that's wild yeah I called Corinne at like 7 o'clock in the morning from the bathroom I was like do you think you can pick me up she goes I gotta work in the morning I was like you're calling in sick I won 17 grand (laughs) (laughs) so they find they find the van and there was no signs of who could have taken it now, this probably explains why there was no cameras in that lot. It was the employee lot. Uh, so now I kind of get it. Yeah, but still, you'd still think right? that they would have our yeah. cameras in the parking lot. Don't so, most parking lots have cameras? Just assume uh, that. I don't think so. Like bigger ones? I don't think so. Hmm. All right. So they're thinking that since it was left in the employee lot, maybe who was ever driving it was a Foxwood employee. Foxwood is the casino. Or connected to a Foxwood employee since he felt comfortable parking there. They do a search of the car. They find some, like, old food wrappers, but nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. And they don't think it was from the people who drove the car because it was, like, so old uh. that it would have been from Eugene. So they impound the car so it can be more thoroughly reviewed for forensics. The police start interviewing Foxwood employees until... What? They get a call from the police in a nearby town of New Britain. One of their patrolmen reports that he saw a suspicious vehicle parked on the side of the road less than an hour east of Malov's house. Malov is Eugene's last name. (laughs) Oh, right. Right. Got it. When he went up to the car, there were two men inside who were bloody. They had blood everywhere and were bruised all over. Really? As if they'd been in a street fight. Inside the car is a recently used crack pipe and a package of white socks with some pairs missing. What? Oh, just like the socks worn by the man driving Malov's van the night of the murder. Got it. When you said pairs missing, I was like, well, how do they know that there were pairs in the car to begin with? I thought you meant the fruit. A I pear. can't. I literally. Can't I'm really you. struggling like I today. Not with you. I can't Words follow. Words are hard. <laughs> Easily distracted. Is really literally, last right Friday at work, I was like, okay, 
what do you say what's that word you use when and I'm like explaining the situation and like a coworker from my cubicle over would scream the word I'm like okay thank you and like five minutes later I was like okay wait but what if you need to use another word that explains this and like what is wrong with you today I'm like words are hard (laughs) I'm struggling today Uh, all right so coincidence I think think not. not Also, if you think about it, murderers can be kind of smart sometimes. Like, I never would have thought to wear socks. And that's so much more economical, I feel like, than gloves. You know? It's so much cheaper. (laughs) And I mean, if they're brand new, the fibers that you leave aren't going to, like, have your DNA. That's what I'm saying. So, anywho, they bring in the two men for questioning. They turn out to be Gary McAvoy, who's 42, and Joseph Riley, age 45. These two have... Do they got a rap sheet? Do they? Tell me more. They've been in and out of jail. Joseph Riley has an addiction, and he's been committing committing petty theft to fund his addiction. Excuse me, ma'am. Yes? You said addiction. Like, that was a problem to begin with. He just has a drug addiction. He's addicted to crack cocaine. All right. And Gary McAvoy um, kind of just works with him to, like, scrounge together um, things to support their drug habits. Got it. Neither man is very eager to talk, obvi. Hmm. Also, I thought this has really nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was hilarious. What? At one point, Gary McAvoy is brought coffee, and he purposely spills it all over his shirt in an attempt to hide the blood stains. And the police are like, we can see the fucking blood stains on your shirt. That's not going to contaminate the DNA. And it's all over your body. Like, it was just hilarious. I mean, it's a good shot. <laughs> like... You used what's there. (laughs) They're like, just tell us what happened. When asked about the crimes, he didn't say he didn't do it. He just kept saying, I can't tell you. So the detectives turned to Joseph Riley. The only thing that they tell Joseph is that they're investigating a homicide and nothing else. So that's what makes it weird or what makes what he said next so startling to them. The first thing Joseph says is, so what happened to the old man? Was it one guy or two guys that killed him? Hmm. How do you know it was an old man? What a way to start the interview. Joseph realizes what he does, and he comes up with the story about him and Gary, how him and Gary ended up bloody and passed out in the van. That night, they were high in crack cocaine. They robbed a local country club and stole some items out of the pro shop including the package of white socks. Huh. Then they celebrated by smoking some more crack. Then they got to... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It just was funny that I you know, said right? that. Way. Celebrated by smoking some more crack. Some more crack. So when they went to go start their car that they were driving, Joseph broke the key in like the ignition when he went to go turn uh, it. Have you ever done that? No. I did it once. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Actually, I lied. I did it once when I was on Cameron's parents' mo- like riding lawnmower i didn't want to drive it to begin with but they pressured me to do it yeah and then i broke the key and i couldn't turn it off why do they want you to ride it so bad i don't know that's weird anywho um but then once he like broke the key in the car they got into a fight with each other when Joseph freaked out on him for breaking the key, and that's how they got bloody and bruised. They beat each other up because they were so high in crack. Uh, huh. The only person who could corroborate this story is Gary, and he's not talking. So the police think that they have another idea of what might have happened the night of May 15th. 
They believe that Joseph and Gary spotted Eugene and decided to rob him. And their cracked-induced high, they savagely beat him and then stole his van. Hmm. The only way to prove this theory is to show that the bloodstains on the two men were, in fact, from Maloff. So they take their clothes and rush them to the lab for testing. And the results? It's a match. No match. <gasps> no trace of Eugene's Maloff blood anywhere. Really? Just their own DNA. And the things in the van... That they were driving, not Malov's van, the van that they were driving, could not be traced back to Malov. It was literally all the items from the country club's pro shop. Huh. Which only further proves Joseph's story was actually truthful. Just a couple of crackheads rabbit shit. Just a couple of crackheads beating each other up. Isn't that wild? That is wild. With no evidence to connect them, they're in the clear for the murder, but they remain in jail for the crimes they committed that night. Well, that sucks. I know, right? It's like, oh. Man, I think you're telling the truth. You should get off on the other one. <laughs> they stole from the country club. It's fine. Those rich bitches didn't need it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Eugene's funeral was four days later, and his family is struggling to move on. They want answers. And they're not the only ones. Eugene was a popular scientist in the field of clean energy, and so many of his followers and fellow scientists were very distraught. He was a huge proponent of cold fusion, and he had a vision that this could replace oil and gas and could be a cleaner, cheaper way to power everything. Planes, trains, automobiles. He said this was going to be a revolution, and the fossil fuel era era, era is about to end. Yeah. But not everyone was excited about this idea as mail off. Sure, ExxonMobil wasn't. This was the conspiracy theory. Dun, dun, dun. One of his fellow scientists came forward and said that there may be a possible cover-up of cold fusion. Large energy companies own vast resources in coal and in oil, trillions of dollars worth that are still in the ground that they want to use for profit. Meloff knew that people were against cold fusion and they would do anything to protect their interests. They weren't afraid to use intimidation or violence. And the timing of his murder was a little suspicious. Yeah, tell me why. He was murdered the day before he was scheduled to unveil important new research. Uh, His colleagues think he was murdered due to the threat that he posed. He was whacked. The police couldn't discount this and it was on the radar. But before they could launch into this idea, they do a forensic search of his van. Really? Several hair and fiber strains were collected, and they also found fingerprints that didn't belong to Melov. And when they entered it into the database, it came back as a match to a known criminal. Who? A man who may hold the key to his murder. Tell me more. It came back as Roger Dolman, and he was well known by the police department. 24-year-old Dolman had a long history of assault and battery, most recently in California. He had been living on the streets in California and got into a pretty bad fight with another homeless person and was sent to prison. When he got out, he flew back to Norwich, Connecticut and became known around the area as a thug for hire. Hmm. His picture, though, like in the show, he literally looks like he's like a tiny little like string bean that's like 30 pounds at most. It's like, how are you a thug? Right. It's how are so you wild. Beating people up? So detectives track him down to his aunt's house and he's brought in for questioning. He claims he has absolutely no clue what the fuck they're talking about and they had nothing to do with it. Okay. When they ask where he was at the time of the murder, he claims he went to gamble at the local casino. 
Coincidence? Casino, you say. From 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. While there, he met a woman at the slots and left shortly after to go have sex with her. Interesting. Sounds like a typical night out to me. Does it? (laughs) You met a few guys at the slot machine and fucked them in your day? Because I never steered it. It's a typical Tuesday night. (laughs) So this was the same casino that Malow's van was parked in the night of his murder. While Dolman waits in the interrogation room, police make calls to verify his alibi. While he sits alone, he must realize that he's fucked and he calls them back to confess. He said, look, I don't know who the fuck that guy is. I had nothing to do with a murder. But I know how my fingerprints got in the car. How? I broke into the police impound and went from car to car, taking what I could from each car to sell for money. The fucking balls on him. That sounds crazy talk. He admits he was in the van, but it was the day after the murder. Could you imagine breaking into the police? Could you imagine? Yeah, but I guess that's not a terrible idea because if people are like pulled over their or their cars are sold, right. they didn't really have time to maybe take the stuff out yeah. of their car. I guess that's not a terrible idea. And it's like, how would they know that if Risky. it hasn't been like, right. impo- you know what I mean, gone through yet? They don't know what's missing and what's right. not. Wow. He and... <laughs> He insists he can back up the story. He leads investigators right to the spot where the van was stored and shows them how he broke in. Several casino employees testify that he was at the casino gambling during the time when Malov would have been murdered. So he's cleared of the murder, but kept in custody for breaking into the impound lot. Another criminal <laughs> taken off the streets. So it's now been a week and detectives still have no more leads. So they return to the scene of the crime, hoping to find more clues. The house itself is still pretty empty. It's been vacated for about a month. So they start looking into the former tenants that had rented from Malov. The married couple that had rented the house before were interviewed separately. They said they hardly saw Eugene. They would just send checks to his New Hampshire or to New Hampshire each month, and everything went pretty smoothly. The night of the murder, they were in their new rental. They had dinner and they went to bed. Um, The male's name was Xavier. He was a part-time cook, and his wife was unemployed. So at times, they'd have trouble paying the rent. So that's why they had to move out. But when they lived in the house, they would at times run out rooms in the house to try to make rent. I don't think that's legal, is it? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Me either. Yeah, maybe. One of the people that they rented a room to was their 24-year-old son, Chad, and his girlfriend, Candace Foster, and their new baby. right? I guess, but I feel like if that's not part of your rental agreement, I don't think you're just uh, allowed to. Yeah. You I know mean, what I mean? Yeah, it's probably against your lease. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Well. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they interviewed Candace and Chad, and they said that they had never met Malov. Chad worked at a local casino. Here we go. And Candace stayed home to take care of the baby. When interviewing Chad, they asked if anyone else lived in the house with them while he was renting fr- the room from his parents. And he was like, no, it was just us. Oh, well, there was this guy who lived in the basement. He was a really aggressive dude. <laughs> like, what is happening? Why is there 8 million people in this Seriously. home? Seriously. So this man was 27-year-old Damian Moreno. He lived there January to May, and they all moved out of the house a month before Eugene's death. 
Chad says that he heard from his parents while living in the house that Damien had actually run into Eugene once and they didn't exactly hit it off. Hmm. Malov Saad spilled oil on the driveway and asked Damien to clean it up. And Damien was kind of like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> and Malov's like, Hi, like, I'm sorry. I own this home. Do you live here? And Damien was like, yeah, actually, I do. And then Malov was fucking pissed because I think it was like, not people are living here yeah and malov didn't know that damien had a criminal background he had a violent past with guns and with drugs the police didn't have to go far to find him to bring him in for questioning he was already at the police station for assault of his uncle so they questioned him about the murder he claims he has no idea what this is about and that he didn't kill anybody he's a poultry worker what does that mean that he works with chicken Oh, like at a packing facility? On a farm. Because he said the night Malov was killed, he was on a farm 200 miles away. Oh, all right. So he gives a DNA sample, hair, and fingerprints. The farm where he's working is contacted, and they confirm that he was there. God damn it. God, there's so many suspects. But then the forensic lab calls. Yeah. They just received the results on the hair and fibers gathered from the van. And there's a match to one of the hairs. Here we go. And it's not to Damien Moreno. Oh. It's one of the first suspects of the case. Crack addict Joseph Riley. Really? But how did his hair end up in Eugene's van? Tell me. They were at the golf pro shop, remember? So how did it get there? Well, I mean... If the guy lives in the same house as him, it could have been transferred from him. I don't know. What do you mean? Like, doesn't... the Oh, no, the crackheads don't live in the same house. Crackheads don't live in the house. Sorry, I'm confusing all of the people that live in the house. So now, Joseph and McAvoy are back on the top of the suspect list. They already had him in custody. Because of the pro shop break-in. So they begin calling back key witnesses. The shuttle bus driver. His initial description of the driver was a white man wearing a baseball cap. So they showed him a lineup of eight different men. And he was able to distinctly point out Joseph Riley. He said that was him driving the van. And he's not the only witness. One of Riley's prison cellmates comes forward. Hmm. Jailhouse informant. Always the snitches. This man said, yeah, we call him Crack Joe. He's always bragging about jumping old men and robbing them. He said that he bragged about killing Eugene and said he was punching him, kicking him, and he said that it was some scientist or doctor that they killed. So the detectives start to solidify their case within the next year. Year? Jesus. And submit the charge of murder for both Joseph Riley and Gary McAvoy on June 1st when they're formally charged. So now prosecutors start putting together their case. Until. What? Until what? The hair that linked Joseph Riley found in the van unravels the the case. Uh, We were so close. So close. They received a call from the lab. 
they had made an error. What? The hair samples were mislabeled, and the hair in the van was not Joseph Riley's, but actually Eugene Malov's. Oh. And once this happens, the rest of the evidence begins to crumble. Just falls apart. Now, the shuttle driver announces he can't be certain that it was Mr. Riley that he saw in the van. He wasn't really sure who he saw. And the inmate who claimed that Riley confessed, he was lying in an attempt to get a lower sentence. Of course sentence. he was. Okay, I don't. All these jailhouse informants need, I don't understand. I That's feel like why people don't trust them. I know. But then that one, in that one case we did where the guy saw that his brother and his friend bring that dead girl's body back, he confessed and it was right. That was like three or four episodes ago. I don't think I remember that one. Anyways, I don't remember. As soon as we record these, I forget. You never so shocked that you remembered that. <laughs> so in 2008, the charges were dropped. Ugh. So they're back on the case. Who the fuck did this? And it was starting to turn cold. There was no new leads. So a billboard was put up offering a reward and hundreds of tips came flooding in. Most were not great. But on May 18th, five years later, a woman calls into the Five years later. Claiming that it's very important to speak to someone. 32-year-old Edith Hollins, an ER nurse, tells police that her two roommates seemed to panic when the case was reopened. Hmm. Her roommates? Chad Schaefer and Candace Foster, the former tenants. Remember the casino worker and the girlfriend Uh, with the baby? Oh, yeah. What could they have to be anxious about? Hmm. So they bring Candace and Chad back in separately for questioning. Candace Foster is a nervous fucking wreck, and she pretty much doesn't bring forward any new information. So they spend over an hour with Chad getting nowhere, but when they left Candace alone for that hour, she starts to fucking fall apart, and she's ready to make a deal. Singing like the canaries do. She's scared of retaliation from Chad, so she says, I'll tell you whatever you want. You want to know, but she wants to be put into a safe place. So they move her and her two kids into a safe house, and she agrees to talk. March of 2010, she returns to the station. Candace started, or Candace said it all started with Claudine's, who is Chad's mother, drove by Malov's house and saw Malov cleaning out, like, the house that they had rented. Okay. Claudine calls Chad and tells him that Malov is throwing out all of their things into a dumpster because... Despite repeated warnings to Chad from his parents telling him that he had to get his shit out of the house because they moved out, he never did. And so Malov was like, okay, well, it's about a month and started getting rid of shit. Selling it off or throwing it out, yeah. He just assumed it was simply trash. Candace didn't own a car, so, or either did Chad, so he had to ask for a ride from his cousin. His cousin is an ex-con with a history of violent assaults. So they drove over to Malov's house and Chad went up to him immediately and was like, hey man, is that my stuff you're fucking throwing out? And Malov was literally, and this is what Chad said, he said, take it. I told your parents to take it weeks ago. Go ahead. Like, save me the money with a dumpster. I don't care. But but Chad and his cousin thought that he was disrespecting their family, so they beat the shit out of him. When Chad got home, 
he told Candace what had happened and and she said that she wasn't like involved in any way and that's the whole story. But what about the van? Yeah. An eyewitness, the the shuttle driver said he saw a white male driving the van the night of the murder. Both Chad and his cousin are black. Mm. Candace is not. But Candace suddenly remembers a third man with Chad and his cousin Moselle. Just suddenly. Harrison Enders. And she said he's the one who drove the van to the casino parking lot to make it look like a carjacking gone wrong. But that's there's one little wrong thing with that story. What? Tell me. Harrison Enders was in police custody the night of the murder on burglary charges. Uh... So that was pure fabrication. To hide her involvement in the crime. Liar, liar. Panties on the fire. Police. Liar. So she's forced to own up to her own lies and she finally tells the whole story. Chad did return home that night, bloody and sweaty. When she heard about the beating, she wanted to see it for herself. So she left her babies at home and went with Chad back to the house. Eugene, at this point, is still on the ground alive, moving and crying out for help. What? They made a decision then that Candace had to be a part of it so they so that she couldn't rat them out. So she takes a pipe and hits him over and over again. And that's when his windpipe is broken. Wow. Like, this is so... Fucked up. Fucked up. He's still it's alive. Like, Why did she call the police? And there was nothing that he did wrong. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? It was just so sick and twisted. So they had to make it appear to be a robbery. They take his shoes, his shirt, his wallet, and a couple other things. Then, wearing a baseball cap and socks, it was Candace who was driving the van that night. Mm. She left no DNA evidence, and if she hadn't confessed, she never would have been held accountable with a role. For five years, they got away with it, hoping that Joseph and McAvee would take the fall for their crime. Candace Foster accepted a plea deal for her testimony against Chad and Moselle, she served five years and was released in 2015. That's it? That's it. That's fucked up. Chad Schaefer took it to trial, but halfway through, he took a plea deal of 16 years to be served in prison. He's eligible for parole in 2024. Wow. Roselle Brown went to trial, and after four months, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. They didn't really say, like, how much time he got. Really, from jail. Yeah. And wow. that's the murder of Eugene Mellon. That's fucked up. Isn't that so fucked up? I think I'm most mad at the woman. Me too. And that she only got five years? years? Fuck that bitch. Like, I know that she needs it for like her testimony, but still. Mm. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. And infuriating. So wild. It's really infuriating. Fuckers. I thought it was going to be, like, I started it because the description of the show was like, Crazy scientist involved in cold fusion sparks yeah. these conspiracy theories. And I was like, okay, that really had nothing to do with it. But it was still pretty good. Yeah. It was like wild. Twisty turny. All you love them. criminals getting involved. Also, could you imagine if Joseph Riley and whatever McAvoy went to jail for that crime? I know. There were just a couple crackheads trying to steal from the just golf pro shop. Just a couple crackheads trying to get a buck. And they would have went, they never would have gotten caught. Five years later. Wow. These cold cases. You know? Hmm. 
Oh my God. All right, guys. Let us know what you think. Jump into the group. It Slide just makes sense. Podcast discussion group. Slide into the DMs. Hit us up on Instagram. It just makes sense podcast. You can follow me at WW Sam and the Buff. You can follow me at Jeff Seif on Twitter, 1F and Jeff. Don't forget to like, subscribe, give us a five star rating. Right, right, right. <laughs> Until next time. Bye. Bye.